You're like the okay. I think I got it. You're the first person I've ever done a remote uh, podcast with. Oh man, aren't you? Aren't <laughs> you just? You step it into that realm right as we will hopefully come out of it. <laughs> right. Uh, we're just we're at that point now where uh, I think I saw someplace like in Georgia, she's dropping some mask mandate. And uh, so I don't know what all is going to happen, but it's crazy. What's it like? You're in California, right? Yeah, I'm in California. So, um, I mean, <laughs> I've said this since I left and came here. I went from, you know, the place that's the most restrictive, one of the most conservative to the place that uh, or the least restrictive to the most restrictive, one of the places that's the most liberal. So it's been it's been locked down here. And I'm I'm sure you've seen the, you know, recall Newsom shit yeah. and all that. So it's, you know, people are up in arms here. Because it's interesting how different California is all across the state. It's not this like liberal paradise like everybody thinks it is. It's not, and that 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 was my experience uh, living in Washington and Oregon. Um, it depends yeah. on what county you're in, and, yeah. and and even there, it depends on what part of the county you're in. Uh, like Clark County, if you're downtown uh, around Vancouver proper. <clears throat> It's not as liberal as uh, Portland is made out to be, but if you get up to North Clark County, it's like you're, it's like you're over in Meigs County here or Polk County, right? <laughs> I mean, the people are the same way. I told them I said the only difference between a redneck in Tennessee and a redneck in Washington was one's got a skull can ring in his back pocket and the other's got a latte. I mean, uh, <laughs> that was about the only difference. So let's get into that. How did you get out to California? So, man, I've got to get my dates right now. Um, I guess two years ago now, it was the end of 2019. <clears throat> um, this, is a, this is a long story. So, this all started when I came out here to visit my cousin Kane, who works in um, computer engineering in Oakland. Yeah. And... Um, that was like, this is, it sounds a little bit, um, you know, whatever to say, but that was kind of a life changing experience for me because, um, it was, it was the first time I had really been that far away, but more specifically at 26 years old, it was the first time I'd flown. Oh, wow. And, you know, I had always wanted to get out of Tennessee, do something different. I just didn't have the confidence. I mean, you know, let's be honest, I was a little bit sheltered. <laughs> and I had never, you know, taken it upon myself to get on a plane and go somewhere and do that thing. So um, at, at 26 years old, we decided to take a family trip out. There was like, you know, eight of us or something like that. And I got out to California and I was like, holy shit, you know, this is this is kind of like where I want to be, at least for a little while. Like this is the stark difference to Athens, Tennessee, that I want to experience and be able to say, looking back on my life that I went there and I did that. And hopefully that'll be the first step and I'll go to other places. But I knew in some capacity I wanted to get out there. So, um, and I was also, you know, I was to the point where my job wasn't really doing it for me. You know, I have a master's in social work, but I was, you know, just working at a technical college, kind of coordinating students, nothing against them or that job, but it just wasn't really like meeting 
the needs and the desires that I had for my own career and what I wanted to do with that social work degree. And, um, yeah, like I said, I was kind of just restless, kind of had got to the point where I was feeling like, you know, you get, you get kind of stale and you start to feel like you're just existing instead of living and you need to shake it up a little bit. No, I, I totally get it. One of the things I tell my kids or I told my kids growing up, I said, there's nothing wrong with where you grew up. You just got to get out and go experience things. And Kaylee, obviously she's your age. Uh, she was born in 92. You were born in 92, right? Yep. Uh, and uh, yeah, cause we had, you won't remember this. Uh, uh, your, your mom and dad and me and my then wife met at Jenkins. We had both our babies and we had, dinner one night good old uh, jenkins yeah <laughs> uh, yeah you were yeah you were both still babies um kaylee was the first she did americorps but she did six month thing uh where she went out for six months and she basically what they did with her they put her on a team that toured uh i want to call it the midwest and she did <clears> some disaster relief they worked at a children's camp they did some building. They worked at a environmental project. And she, so she got to travel around and do a lot. Um, so it was really, really good for her. And she's not done anything with the scholarship. I don't know if it's a scholarship you get from it, but she's not done anything with that, but it was a overall good experience. Now that's what you're in, right? Grayson, you're in, you're with AmeriCorps. Yeah. So I actually have a friend, Brianna Millsaps, um, that is doing that program you're talking about that Kaylee did. It's called NCCC, National yeah. Conservation Corps uh, something. But yeah, she she just went to Iowa and got through her three-week training program. And now she's traveling around on what they call spikes and doing, you know, controlled burns, disaster relief, that kind of thing. That's exactly um, what she did. Yeah. So that is like under the larger... Uh, AmeriCorps umbrella because AmeriCorps is super complicated and most people don't even know what it is. You know, you've heard of Peace Corps, but the AmeriCorps is a little less known. Right. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of people, what was, what, there's, there's an organization that kids, when they get in trouble, they go to. Uh, and everybody thought that's what Kaylee was in. It. <laughs> no. <laughs> she's like in the American version of Peace Corps, that's what she's doing. And, and even the Peace Corps is complicated. Uh, oh, there's yeah. different levels that you get involved with, but uh, I'm trying to think of what that group is that uh, I, I can't think of it off my head. But yeah, uh, so so this program is um, is one of their state specific programs. So it's a California state and national program, and it's all across the state. But as long as you're in the program, no matter where you're placed, with usually a nonprofit organization or a government organization you are helping them coordinate volunteers or build volunteer infrastructure like spreadsheets and databases and surveys and stuff like that. If you're not directly coordinating their volunteers. So, so now Kaylee's was for you. All you really had to be was a high school graduate. Now yours, if I understand the process, depending on your degree, you can go into different levels of AmeriCorps. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, usually it's the state and national programs that will set kind of like a higher standard for what they're looking for, because the state and national programs can have an AmeriCorps member do direct service. Whereas like the VISTA program, which is the big nationwide one, they don't really do, um, 
direct service, it would be an injustice to say that they're like an intern, but they all, they just, they're a little bit more protected, I guess their boundaries are a little bit stricter for what they can do. Uh, but yeah, so this program I think required, um, a bachelor's degree and, you know, there's, there's ones in California that aren't like that, but this one in particular required a bachelor's degree because I guess you're just going to have a little bit more responsibility on you uh, when you're placed in the organizations, you're expected to work independently and, you know, bump those volunteer recruitment numbers up, coordinate those volunteers that are here and work independently to meet the goals and build the infrastructure and stuff. So, so how did you find AmeriCorps? I mean, what, I mean, there's a lot of ways you could have went out to California. There's a lot of things you could have done, but what, what drew you to AmeriCorps? Yeah, that's kind of the next part of the story. Um, you know, I got back home. I was still working at Tennessee College of Applied Technology in Athens. And I started to do some research, you know, indeed kind of thing. Um, I mean, I have a master's degree in social work. And, you know, honestly, in California, social workers get paid a little bit more. They're a little bit more valued out here. <laughs> so um, I was like, you know, I, could, I can do this. I'm just going to find a job. You know, well, it, I was finding jobs that I was qualified for or that would have brought me on and gave me some on-site training. And I actually did a few interviews, but what's interesting is, you know, this was pre COVID time. So they're like, yeah, just come in for an interview. You know, why don't you just come up? Can you do Monday, Monday, 3 PM? And I'm like, no, 3000 miles away. Um, and you know, like I said, pre COVID. So nobody was preferring that you do a remote interview, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that definitely put up a roadblock and I was talking to some friends, um, you know, at a party one day and they were like, well, if you're trying to do something different, you should look into AmeriCorps. You know, we have it at Tennessee Wesleyan, but it's all over the United States and it's a pretty good way to, you know, still be able to put something that looks good on your resume, do some networking, but also get some good job experience, especially in the field of social work because they line up so well. They do. Yeah. So, so, so I just, um, I started looking, got on the AmeriCorps website and honestly just started looking through California and applying. And, um, you know, it's kind of history at this point, Napa is the hub for this AmeriCorps program. And <clears throat> they have a really great team up there that works really hard to recruit. And they reached out to me first. And while others did reach out to me, I was also looking at Colorado. They just had a really strong team that kind of helped me through those baby steps that I needed since I had never done this before. And they were kind of like a guiding hand to help me. And like, you know, finding housing was a, a bitch just to be frank, you know, from yeah. 3000 miles away, I had to coordinate housing. So they helped me with that. Um, so Napa, you know, not to dog Napa, but that probably wasn't what I had in mind when I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to go to California and do this thing. Uh, but it, it was a really great experience, especially for the first year. Well, good. Uh, see, that was different from uh, Haley's is uh, that NCC. She didn't have to worry about housing. Yeah. They coordinated all that. She just traveled around. She had some good experiences. Uh, she was in a couple of tornadoes. Uh, and wow. then she called, called. Uh, yeah, the, I can't remember the name of the school. There's a blind school in the Midwest that uh, Laura Ingalls, remember from Little House on the Prairie? It was an actual, actual people. And, uh, Laura Ingalls actually went to that blind school when she went blind. And so that was one of the places that they kept her for a week and there was tornadoes there. And because the school is 
where it's at in the Midwest and the weather would get so bad. They had underground tunnels in all the buildings so the kids could go to their different buildings and classes at that school. And that's where she would have to evacuate to. But she called one day and uh, she was talking about the thunder and the lightning and the rain and how she went outside and they were running around and dancing and playing in it. And then she grew up in the Pacific Northwest where we didn't have thunder and lightning. And I'm like, Haley, you really, you really don't want to be running around out there in that. <laughs> uh, but Levi just did this. Uh, he grew up, obviously, the bulk of his life in the Pacific Northwest. And last fall, he moved down here. And Levi self-identifies as a commie, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's just that Portland liberal. <laughs> Uh, he would go when he was when the protests were taking place. He would go down there. He wasn't involved in any of the violence or stuff, but uh, he's very much uh, got a heart for activism. And he moved here to Athens, and uh, he said, although it's it's a bit of a culture shock for him, he welcomes this because where he lived there, everything was just so crazy and busy, and here it's just slow. And somebody was complaining about the traffic here one day and he just started laughing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how I feel out after being out here. It's just like, no, you don't even uh, know, man. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. Uh, so uh, you've been out there two years. And where'd you first, you went to Napa first or what? Yeah. So I went to, <clears throat> excuse me, I went to Napa first and um, participated or, I guess I should say I was placed at a program there with the Napa County Office of Education called uh, Safe Routes to School. And basically what they did is teach kids bicycle safety, specifically like grade school students within the school system. And they did that with the mission of encouraging students to ride their bike or walk to school and therefore lower emissions, you know, that kind of thing, yeah, get, yeah. keep, keep traffic low around the schools. Cause that gets busy and stuff like that. So it's a good idea. Uh, that was a really cool experience, you know, and it's weird to think back at all the experience I had on site with people, with the students, uh, and to think that, you know, definitely if, if not more of the last six months of it was spent working from home because of COVID. Um, well, how do you, you teach know, a kid to ride a bike from home? You don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> we we did try, but in a lot of uh, we tried through you know uh, Videos. video video and Zoom. But you know when the pandemic first happened, the infrastructure like we're using now, this was just a natural thing to do, was just not there. Um, you know, even in the school system, people were like, we don't know what, what's good. What's zoom, you know, zoom. Right. I mean, whoever had stock in zoom before the pandemic are they're rich now because <laughs> zoom. Blew oh yeah. Up if you had stock a year ago in zoom, it's a, a, you drinking coffee or are you drinking? Yeah. Drinking coffee. I've got mud water. You ever drink mud water? Dude, I keep hearing about that because I listen to so many freaking podcasts and I need to try it. Uh, yeah. let's see. You happy yeah, with it? Mud water. Uh, it's not mine. Um, I'm I'm downtown Athens because where I live, uh, we get HughesNet. There's no way I would trust to Zoom on HughesNet. So uh, Creekside Massage and Yoga. I don't know if you know of it. Uh, it's a business that does massage and yoga. Friend yeah. of mine, Christy Mayu, owns it. She just bought a building on the square right between Games. No, it's not. 
Uh, if you had stock in that, you'd be rich too right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you might be losing your ass, but you're talking about paradise. <laughs> right. Paradise. It's between paradise and uh, Riddle and Wallace. She's got that building there. It used to be Ridge Outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she she bought it. The studio, her massage and yoga studio is downstairs, and she's living upstairs. Matter of fact, I'm doing a remodel right now. I'm in the kitchen and a freestanding bathtub up here. But nice. I, she lets me come in here and do podcasts, or if I gotta uh, do a virtual meeting like this, I just come in here and do that. Anyways, it's her mud water, and um, she got it and tried it out, and she's made me a couple of cups. And I made me one. I am happy with it. Um but I'm also a fan of mushrooms and I'm not talking about the psilocybin. I'm not done that yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yet is the I keep keyword. hearing about it. I keep hearing about it. But I have done lion's mane, which is the closest yeah. legal mushroom you can get to psilocybin. And I've done that. And when I was working at Denso is when I started taking it. I'd heard about it on the Joe Rogan podcast. I started taking it, and one of my jobs at Denzel when I first started there was I was in what they call a tool crib. And so you would come in and get a part, and I'd have to ask you all these numbers. Well, if you're getting like four or five parts, I got to do it four or five times. I couldn't just scan every part and do it one time. And so I'm asking you every time, okay, what's this, what's this, what's that? Well, after taking that lines made for about a week, I'm not asking. I'm, I'm just remembering this stuff and doing it. So uh, I am going to get some of this just for my personal use and start that instead of coffee in the morning. Now, Christy has been doing it for over a month and she's not had coffee since. And wow. what she says is her brain fog is gone. She's more productive. Uh, she's thinking, well, brain fog's gone. She would be thinking clearer, but just feeling better. And honestly, not that there was anything wrong with her before. I can tell a, uh, a difference in her overall attitude, a difference in her overall outlook, a difference in her overall yeah. everything. Uh, now, could that be because the sunshine's getting brighter and it's getting warmer here? Yeah, that could play a part of it too, but she's attributing a lot of it to this mud water. So I That's mix cool. I need, I need to try it. Yeah, I've heard – I keep hearing about mud water as a coffee alternative, and then I keep hearing about athletic greens. And if you listen to podcasts long enough, you hear about both of those too. <laughs> All the top podcasts advertise athletic greens. <laughs> Yeah, they really do. It's, uh, yeah, I could probably come up with five different sponsors that are probably not paying us. Zip Recruiter, yeah. Yeah, Zip Recruiter. Uh, Wearspace was one for a long time. Yeah, uh, well, now now there's Headspace. Uh, yep. Yeah, we're not going to get paid for any of these uh, no. mentions. But Simply Safe. I Simply keep hearing safe. Simply Safe. I listen to too much pod save america and i hear simply safe all the time well what podcast do you listen to what are your main ones <clears throat> well i i'm um i never could get in really get into political activism uh like you were you were saying your son does but um i am i try to be very politically involved and informed yeah so i listen to the daily pod save america <clears throat> just about every episode of those or at least the half that you know is is informing you um also i'm a big fan of behind the bastards uh that's one where uh they talk about the worst people in history and they give you like a full biography on them and kind of build up to like whatever shitty thing that they did you know oh, the wow. obvious example is hitler you know right hitler did all the 
terrible shit that he did, but what was his childhood like? What molded him into that person? So it's, that's a really cool podcast. Um, I'm also have a weird obsession with uh, Jim Cornette's podcast. I don't know if you know who that is. (laughs) He's a, he was a wrestler in, uh, excuse me. He was a manager in professional wrestling from like, the early 80s if not before until the late 90s um but he's hilarious you know he was uh, known for being a fast talker so he does a really good podcast um you know in my case he's also a democrat kind of a liberal so he gets he gets on those tangents too and uh, it's pretty funny because he's like he's a hard ass but he's also on that on that train so yeah, well, that, that's I don't even watch professional wrestling anymore, but for whatever reason, he's entertaining enough that I listen to him talk about current wrestling as if I even watch it, but I don't. So <laughs> it's kind of like background noise, you know? I uh, It's funny because you said uh, Democrat and, and mm-hmm. he gets put over on the other side. It's like Joe Rogan. Uh, a lot of people think he's like this uh, this hardcore conservative guy. He's not. He's, yeah. He, you know, politically, he's very liberal. He just He's just honest about the bullshit on both sides uh there was a podcast i was listening to the other day oh uh the micro podcast you know who micro is uh i do i didn't realize he had a podcast yeah it's called the way i heard it uh he and this podcast is almost in the same vein as uh paul harvey used to do paul harvey used to come on uh the radio and he would do a story what was it oh and the rest of the story is what he would say and he would do a story but he's not telling you who the story is about or what it's about and you're just sitting here you get all involved and right at the end he reveals this is who it was and um, he did one the other day and they got to talking about he got to talking about a, a statue that's at a battlefield uh, famous for the revolutionary war and the statue is a cannon and there's a boot laid over it there's no name there's no plaque telling you who it's for and what it's about and as he tells the story, what you later find out is it was about Benedict Arnold. Uh-uh. And Benedict Arnold saved that battle. And had he not saved that battle and been the hero he was in that battle, the French wouldn't have got involved in the Revolutionary War. And if the French hadn't got involved in the Revolutionary War, we'd still be British today. Uh, <laughs> so he was a he was a decorated war hero. What happened afterwards was the army basically disrespected him. The army basically just, me, so what? And he put up a lot of his own money to fight that war, and the government yeah. owed him that money back. They never paid him back. <clears throat> so there's a lot of things that the government and the military done. Then all of a sudden, you know, one could argue that maybe you'd have done the same thing and been a traitor. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know i mean it's it's shades of gray man you know and we're we're really far from that as a society right now it's all black and white and i i mean i hate it because i've been a shades of gray person for a long time but you know it's just like you're talking about with joe rogan you know if you it's almost like trying to find space in the middle in those shades of gray is just asking for people to pull you or push you into one side or the other you know right because uh, i was talking yesterday i said this to somebody i said two things can be true at the same time you know uh you so that's we can agree that yeah this is wrong and 
this is wrong. We can both agree. Let's find the middle. Let's see what we can do to help each other out. And the problem is people get pigeonholed. You know, yeah. if if you don't agree with me, you don't deserve to live. Or you need to be canceled and, and shut down. Um, yep. I, I got a problem with that. I, I think it's going to work itself out. I mean, I've been around this. Um, I've been on this rock in this spacesuit <laughs> hurling through Earth long enough to know that uh, things will work itself out. It's just we just got to get through it. Yeah, the bubbles are interesting, though, you know, because, I mean, as I started to change and, uh, you know, I always look at my, uh, you know, political transformation, we can say, is really just me finding the confidence to stand on my own and do my own research, come up with my own opinions. You know, I always um, give credit to my grandfather, or my papa, as I call him, Paul Pierce. You know, he wanted me to stand on my own and be politically involved and have my own political opinion. And I'm so thankful for that. I don't think that he expected me to go the opposite direction and find my way towards the exact opposite of what he believes. But I always credit him for, you know, he's the one that told me you need to register to vote. You know, it's not something that you need to, you know, mess around with. Like, that's your right. You need to do that. And you need to be politically involved because, you know, in his case, he was rolling Fox News all day. But these people yeah. that they're talking about matter and they represent you. So, um yeah i mean uh i definitely because it's it's funny like with me and my political views people will well i mean even like women i've dated long term they've told me people have asked them was was he a republican or a democrat i don't know <laughs> i don't know what he is yeah. <laughs> uh, uh he's got some views over here that are you know that would fit in the liberal uh vein uh, and he's got some views over here that would fit in the conservative vein. I don't know what he is, uh, but I don't vote. Uh, I just I stopped that a long time ago. I just got to the point I was like, because where I lived, uh, I knew what I was going to vote. And I knew that there's no way that it was going to win. Because uh, yeah. the, the, the way it works in, in Oregon and the way it works in Washington, and I know it works that way in California, if uh, Seattle votes one way, it doesn't matter what the rest of the state votes. And in Oregon, if uh, if that Portland metro area votes one way, it doesn't matter what what your vote is because that's what's going to carry the day. So I just thought, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. And yeah, I, I mean, I I hate I hate to hear that, but I could, you know, like I said, you know, some people would jump on your ass and say, what the fuck's wrong with you? You need to vote. <laughs> I was, I took Amtrak um, <clears throat> back to Chicago. And then when I came home for the holidays and flew back to Nashville and there's a guy, we met a bunch of people on the train, you know, trying to keep our distance with COVID or whatever. But, you know, there's this one guy from Denver who was, you know, he had a bottle in his hand the whole time. A Amtrak's a funny place, but he was drinking the whole time. Yeah. And then we got a conversation. This other dude was like, oh, I don't vote. And this guy was a vet, you know, respect to him. But he he went off on this dude and he was a little bit drunk, you know, but he was giving him hell. And I was like, dude, just leave him alone. You know, you're not going to change his mind being an asshole to him. No. But people get pissed about that. But then there's also people that absolutely believe that your vote doesn't matter, especially if you're 
the outlier, the anomaly in a heavily red or blue state. And, right. you know, it, it goes back to our, you know, our voting system is pretty fucked. I mean, it, well, it is. The system's and, not set up for your vote to count, unfortunately. Well, I think it was Mark Twain that said if your vote counted, if your vote mattered, they wouldn't let you do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was Mark Twain. And, and I did get tell over it. Uh, uh, the guy that was running for the state Senate seat here, Mark Cochran. Yeah, yeah. When a nice guy, and when he was running, uh, I think it was his brother-in-law was doing his campaign, and he was over there with Sounds of Summer, and he was over there talking to me. So you're gonna go out and vote for him? I said, Dude, I don't vote. And he's, and I was just, and I said that Mark Twain quote because I'm just trying to be jovial about it. I don't want to get into this theoretical yeah. discussion. Yeah. And he 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 did get kind of upset, and I finally said, Look, yes. What was it? He said, No, this is your duty as an American. I said, no, no, no. no. Let's go back to the Constitution. If, if you're going to support a guy that's running for office, let's let's go back to the Constitution. This is my right, not my obligation. It's my right. I have a right to vote. Just like I have a right to own a gun, I'm not obligated to own a gun. Just yeah. like I have a right to free speech, I'm not obligated to exercise that free speech. So this is not an obligation that I have to do. And uh, and I said, and I said, and I got to go over here. <laughs> <I'm locked up. laughs> And look over there, yeah. Um, uh, I don't want to have this discussion, but and I do, I do think it's important. I mean, if we didn't have votes, uh, you know, Harry T. Byrne up here in Nyota is the one that cast that vote that ratified the Nineteenth Amendment that gave women the right to vote. Uh, I do think voting is important. I, I, I very much do. It's just I don't want to take my time, get involved, and I just don't want to do it. And it's maybe it's because it's just so politically uh, charged. Is that the word I'm looking for? Probably. But. Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know if bureaucracy is the right word, but I think that you know what I mean when I say that, you know, there's, there's a lot of bureaucracy involved in voting, you know, with the, uh, with the, electoral college and everything it's just it seems like we're at a point now where the electoral college on the national level of course is kind of like it, it's just it's an unnecessary thing you know why is it that we don't count the popular vote oh i um, i i can tell you why and, and i i'm a fan of the electoral college if anything i would say expand the electoral college to the state and local level because, like I was saying, in Washington, uh, if King County voted one way, it didn't matter what Yakima County. King County had enough votes because they were they're on a popular vote system. King County's got enough votes <clears throat> that that is going to go through. Mm -hmm. Now, if they had that broke down to electoral college style on the state level, then the politician doesn't have to stay in King County, doesn't have to win the voters of King County. They got to worry about the voters out there in Yakima and in the Tri-Cities, and in the northeastern part of Washington, nobody ever hears about. Those counties' votes then add up. That was where Trump won in the uh, his election. He counted those votes in those states that the Democrats typically just didn't even worry about, where, where Hillary was going for the popular vote. Um, and that, that's what somebody told me. They said, well, she won the popular vote. Well, that's not the game we were playing. The game we were playing was the electoral college vote, which he had to go out to that Rust Belt in the Northeast, you know, Michigan, Ohio, 
those places. He had to go out to the Midwest to get those votes. He had to go out to these places and pack up and get his message out and get these people behind him. So if they did it where, you know, right now in Tennessee, where each county got so many votes, then that would determine how many electoral college votes the state got. It'd be different. But the popular vote, well, if I'm running on the popular vote system, all I got to do is campaign in New York and California. I don't have to worry about what Iowa thinks, because if I can win those two states, I win the entire nation. But if if you if you eliminate the electoral college, you're eliminating just the states, right? Like if you eliminate on the national, I mean, I can I see what you mean by like you could use the popular pulpit of New York or <clears throat> L.A. to to just have your voice heard. You don't have to visit those places, but you wouldn't necessarily be winning California or New York. Right. Well, if I was campaigning on national level. So if I, once I, I think I'm going to, did you know that uh, you could, I can register to be a candidate for 2024 for absolutely free? Uh, <laughs> you should do that. <laughs> I think I'm going to. It's got rule for president. And, and, yeah. and here's my actual, I'm actually registered. So I think I'm going to do that. Uh, remind me and I'll come back and tell you how I find out about that. But so once I register to be president, if I just put my message out in New York, in California, I'm not going to be, and, and I get those states or those large metropolitan areas behind me. I don't have to worry about what you think in Nyota or what somebody else thinks in, um, you know, Colorado. I don't have to su- carry their voice. I don't. I don't have to be concerned about that, and that my message resonates with them. I just got to make sure my message resonates with these people. So that's, that's my fear of it, um, because there are a lot of things in Washington that the bulk of the state, when you look at the map, and uh, you, you do red and blue, I don't know how those colors go, you would see the bulk of the state was red, and then right here around Washington, and right here in Clark County was, uh, was blue. So the bulk of the counties in the state wanted one way, but because these are the most populated places, went that way and that became a problem when i lived in the yakima valley because um it's it's a huge agricultural situation and they rely a lot on irrigation and a lot of irrigation comes from the snowpack off of mount rainier and mount st helens and stuff like that well there was an environmental issue going on and the people in seattle voted for a lot of lo- some really heavy restrictions that were harming the farmers in the Yakima Valley. Uh, well, they don't have, the people in Seattle don't have to worry about irrigation. Their livelihood's not dependent upon it. So, yeah. Yeah, they got to speak for these farmers who are very much, have, have a vested interest on protecting the environment, a vested interest on protecting the water, but they also have a vested interest in relying upon the water. Mm-hmm. So that there, I guess that was when it came to light to me. I'm like, why should they have a vote in what these people need? Yeah, it's in, you know, when that's, those are all really good points. It seems like when you put it like that, we could almost use the electoral college on the state level. Right. And I still think that the popular vote would be better on the national level. So that would be interesting to flip flop those because 
you know, you mentioned that that's not the game we're playing and whether it's naive of me or not, that's what bothers me is that it's became a political game, you know, down to the T. And of course it's always been like that, but the fourth wall question is, does it, do we have to play that game? At least on the national level, is that still useful because you're voting for someone that represents the entirety of the country and, you know, I'm not um, going to avoid the fact that if it was a popular vote, you know, from the past 20 years, Democrats would have won the popular vote almost every time. But still, you know, if you have the majority of the country by the people that are voting, which, you know, not all of America votes, um, winning a seat, then I think um, I think that that person should be the one leading. Well, to your point. If, if yeah, if we went back historically and said, okay, whoever got the popular vote, who would have won? What I would say is, those candidates would have campaigned differently. That's true. That's very. You true. don't know if, I mean, if we went back and said, well, <laughs> Al Gore got the popular vote, well, George Bush was going for the electoral college, but if George Bush was campaigning to win the popular vote, we don't know how that would have turned out. Uh, we don't know what would have turned out with, the, you know, Trump getting elected. If, if he'd have been campaigning for a popular vote, his campaign would have looked differently. Uh, yeah. I think Hillary probably could have won had she uh, campaigned differently. And, and but and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just a guy downtown Athens, you know, talking into a cheap <laughs> microphone. But there were there were plenty of people after she lost that election said the same thing. That she yeah. probably could have won had she campaigned differently. So, <clears throat> well, um, I have to, I have to hand it to, you know, Republicans because I feel like they oftentimes have the system figured out. They they say, okay, you know, it doesn't matter who likes the rules of this game and who doesn't. We're playing it, and we're right. playing to win, and that's what they've been doing. You know, and that's why you know to your point, I think that. Democrats have, a, you know, we'll say a larger worldview or a different perspective on it. You know, we could, you could say that they don't like the game, so therefore they try not to play it. But if you don't play the game with the rules we have in place now, does that cause you to lose? Because it, it, is it even worth saying you're going for the popular vote until where you're winning by winning the popular vote? You know what I'm saying? No, I do. Um, I, I think a lot of people at that level, it's a... Uh, it's an ego thing. I want yeah. to have the popular vote. So that way, if I lose, <clears throat> I can at least come back and say, well, I got the popular vote. And if I win, well, I got the popular vote and I won. Uh, there's an ego thing, but you don't get to that level of politics unless you've got an ego. You got yeah. to have some sort of ego and narcissistic uh, view of yourself to get up there. Uh, and and to, why you would even want that, I don't know. Uh it's coming from a guy who's thinking about registering to run for president. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you know, that, you get your dad on, to be on my, my uh, chief of staff. Yeah. <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> uh, you know, fear the beard. You can put his, his face as the campaign slogan. Right. But you know, that with, with any elite, a lot, of, I won't say any, with a lot of leaders that I've found, uh, that's the case, you know, you, you have to have this ego and it's ironic because having that ego is almost what gives you the confidence to lead and to put yourself in front of people. But it also is kind of what makes you a shitty leader. 
and it's where most of your flaws as a leader come from. There's definitely a balance on that. And I don't know how, how many much leadership books you read, but there's definitely a balance on that. And that's where your team comes into play. Uh, that, for example, uh, I was, I listened, I listened to a lot of podcasts and stuff. And one of the ones mm-hmm. I was listening to was uh, the guy was doing a comparison of, of Moses and Aaron. And he was talking about how Moses was a man of the law. It was black and white. You do this, you don't do that. Aaron was more the peacemaker. And he was the one seeking compromise or the lesser of the two evils. And that's how they work together. And you need, you, when you're getting into that position of leadership, you need somebody there that's going to, you know, temper you down. I, I kind of view marriage like that is that you, you, you know, if you do the traditional father, mother that we grew up with idea, dad's the one that's going to discipline you, call you into, uh, you know, call you onto the carpet. Mom's the one that's going to, you know, kiss your boo-boo when it gets hurt. She's going to comfort you. She's going to nurture, nurture you. They, they give that balance. And I think you need that in leadership. The, the really shitty leaders are the ones that surround themselves with everybody that's going to confirm their own bias. And that's yeah. going to, you know, that, that want the yes, man. I mean, would Hitler have been Hitler had he had surrounded himself with somebody different? Well, yeah, he probably would have killed him and then got who he wanted. Uh, that's that's how they, those guys work. But those are outliers. But just on a regular basis, if you're a leader, you need somebody there that's going to help you keep your ego in check and keep you from that shittiness that you're talking about. Um, yeah. But you do on the same side. You do need that ego. You do need that to give you that confidence that says, I belong on this stage and I'm going to get, get on that stage and I'm going to put myself out there. I've got what it takes to make a difference here and I want to do it. Um, not everybody has that. Yeah. And you have to have the willingness to listen to those people that are going to critique you and try to set you, you know, set you straight. It sounds a little aggressive, but you know, set you back on a path that's more reasonable or more in between when you're being black and white. Yeah. Uh, somebody's going to give you that food for thought. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think, I think that that kind of, you know, goes across the board, you know, I've, um, I, I really rail against extremes. Yeah. I, I, you know, I've, I've always been a guy that's fallen in the middle. I've always been a reasonable person and, you know, becoming a Democrat in the middle of East Tennessee, having never, you know, I, I made that transformation in Athens, Tennessee. Yeah. So I've always been somebody that, you know, wanted to be able to listen and have relationships with conservatives or Republicans. But also, you know, I, I have good friends that self-identify as commies, you know, just like <laughs> you were saying. So, you know, I fall somewhere in between that. But Well, know, my problem... The, well, Levi doing that, and, and, and he and I have had this discussion, is I'm like, okay, look, I don't know if you've got an adequate view of, of historical communism, you know? And he says, well, it's more a, a progressive socialism or democratic socialism or what I'm, I'm about. And I'm like, well, eh. So we, we've had some good discussions on it, and it's not that I have a problem with being progressive. It's not that I have a problem with uh, some socials social ideas i mean we do need a safety net we do need to you know you're not going to get all the homeless off the street but we do need to have a way to take care of them uh we do need to think about health care in this country and what we're going to do about it uh 
there's there's a lot of things like that. We need roads. We need good internet and things of that nature. Uh, but that doesn't mean all capitalism is bad. Yeah. So. Yeah. But it's so hard to have that conversation because it immediately gets politicized and becomes political theater and it goes to, you know, the extremes. It does. It does. And uh, that's and, and there's been times where I've had to tell Levi, look, that's that's a very cynical view. You're, you're not taking into account the nuances that are going on going on here. I, I had this discussion one day about uh, uh, there was a show on. I can't remember what channel it was. It was the men who built America. And. They were discussing Andrew Carnegie. Uh, is it Carnegie or Car- Carnegie? It depends on who you are and where you're from, right? Uh, <laughs> and where you're standing. Anyways, they were discussing him. And, of course, today, a lot of the, especially people who are progressive, would identify him as a uh, robber baron and all those horrible things about him and how he tried to crush the unions and he did this and he did that. And I, and I have to remind him, yeah, he did. But that was legal then. That's the reason it's illegal now. So he brought that change. But he also built libraries across this country that allowed people who didn't have access to books to have access to books because he believed if you could read, you could learn. And if you can learn, you can go do anything you want in this world. So if you look at the good things he did and you look at the roads and the buildings he built, the people who got to work and the truckers who got jobs and the construction men who got jobs, all the people, the things that he built, yeah, he built it to enrich himself and he ended up giving bulk his fortune away. But look at what he did for America. And uh, so that, that's the discussion that we have oftentimes. And um, you got to find that balance in there just because, you know, uh, you know, back to Benedict Arnold. Yeah, he's he is forever memorialized for one act, even though that previous in that life, he was a war hero that changed his country. Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately it it's more politically productive I guess to find those extremes. You know. It is. The, um the I've had I've had to do a lot of reckoning with the fact that, you know, if you're going to be a peacemaker, which is kind of my attitude on things and you fall in the middle like that, your impact on change and your ability to make progress is going to be much slower. And that's why activism on either side, you know, is so quick to make change or to force change because it slaps it in people's face and it says, here's the line, you're on this side or you're on that side. And I don't like that. Uh, but I have seen, you know, in social work and social justice, there's a lot of activism. Of course, it's more on probably what people would consider the political left. Right. Because it's advocating for, you know, those who have less them to have rights and those things that they need. Um, And, you know, bureaucracy and policy and peacemaking does make change and it arguably makes more sustainable change over years and years into the future. But usually it's those activists on the streets. Usually it's the ones that are breaking shit (laughs) that, that force political change, you know, immediately. Well, and to your point, um, you got Breonna Taylor, you got George Floyd. All that's happened within like the last year or so. And I am not a fan of people going into the streets or, or, you know, bashing windows and burning down businesses and flipping cars. And I'm not a fan of that. <clears throat> However, had that not happened, Kentucky would not have banned no knock warrants. That's how Breonna Taylor got killed. 
Had that not happened, Kentucky would not have had no knock warrants. Yep. Had the riots over George Floyd not have happened, we would not have had some of these discussions that were uh, or changes that's taken place in the police force. That wouldn't happen. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I, I started to try to guess his name, but I don't want to do that. But there was a that young man down in Georgia. Those three guys tried to arrest him and ended up killing him. Had that not a had those riots that took place after that not have happened, Georgia would not be getting rid of the fact that a law that allows citizens to make arrests. Yeah. So to your point, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, had we not, you know, had the Boston Tea Party, I mean, that was the exact same thing. It was a, it was a violent protest. And so I, you, you got to look at that and say, okay, we wouldn't have had these discussions. It would have just went away and would have been talking about something else. And there were probably people there at the Boston Tea Party that were like, what the fuck, guys? Like, you know, that was, we needed that. I mean, could we have, could have done that a different way? Could we have talked? Are we at the point where we could have talked? And they, you know, people were pissed and it, it got stuff done. It does. And, you know, and so I, I support activism, but uh, in, in, when all this was taking place, it's, I was still at Denzel and somebody said, well, but Martin Luther King did blah, blah, blah. No, he did not. What made the change there was the exact same thing, but on the other side, the cameras were filming the police taking dogs and fire hoses and to these peaceful protesters. So it was the exact same thing, but in reverse. So had the police not done that and had the cameras not been broadcasting that nationwide, the things that Martin Luther King was preaching would have taken years to go through. So it was that violent protest on the, on the police side or, or white America side <clears throat> at that time or the Dixiecrats uh, it would have that that were doing that violent protest so that's where I do agree with uh, you and my son and a lot of people on that side it's, it's not that I'm advocating hey let's just find a reason to go break shit and tear shit and burn shit but yeah sometimes we need to rise up and say hey enough's enough and we're going to prove it I mean that I happened here do, in downtown Nick. Athens yeah yeah you're right yeah <laughs> Um, I mean, I think to your point though, you do need both sides, you know, I mean, when, when everything with the, the, um, the police riots and stuff were happening, you know, the, the term a cab came out, all cops are bastards. Yeah. And my, as a middle of the road guys, of you know, what I consider a reasonable person or a skeptic, I was like, that's not right. Like I know people that are cops, they're not assholes. You know, and I, I mean, I had some debates with some friends in, uh, in one of my group chats about it. And, you know, they were very, 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 very left and very gung ho about it. And they were like, no, all cops are bastards. It's how it is. It's how we're doing. It. It's what we're shouting. And I was like, OK, but like they're not. And I think that that's my, my thought is you are never going to convince a Republican in Athens, Tennessee, where I'm from you're never going to convince my dad that right. all cops are bastards. And I think, you know, there's so much you have to go through to get to what the actual sustenance is of that phrase. You know, you have to say, okay, first of all, you think of bastard, you think of asshole or whatever. And that's not what the acronym is actually saying. It's saying literally they're bastards. They are illegitimate children of a broken system. 
all cops are bastards. All cops are victims to this broken system that they work under that needs to be changed, revolutionized, and basically just updated. And it's like, okay, well, if you start talking about, you know, updating the police force, updating policing laws, updating policing policies and the way that police officers are trained all across the country, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> now you're having a more middle of the road, reasonable conversation, but you know, you have to acknowledge that all cops are bastards is much more aggressive. It's much more impactful. And whether you're for it or against it, it, it pisses makes you the off. Discussion. You're talking about it, you know? Right. So you know, with that, I think you have to have the people out there shouting it and pissing people off on both sides, getting them riled up or getting them pissed off. But you also have to have the people, I guess, usually the politicians that are willing to say like, OK, we get it. You know, it's an aggressive acronym, but here's what it means. We need police reform. We need police policing transformation. We need new training, new updated laws, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can see it. You can see those extremes as a way to start a reasonable discussion, I guess. Right. I, I agree. The right needs the left and the left needs the right. Yeah. You need that push and pull. And because um, it, it, it brings in accountability and it brings in it, it doesn't allow this extreme view to take place, although that extreme view will pop up. It'll share its head, but it pushes you back where we can find this compromise there's there's lots of examples in american history not just in this last few years but throughout american history where we've needed that and uh, and we're better off for it uh as a country we're better off for it so no i i totally agree with you what other podcasts are you listening to i'm a big fan of wtf with mark Marin. i don't know if you listen to him but he's really uh -uh. good um uh -huh. He kind of just has people on celebrities, different people, and he just talks to them, you know, kind of like we're talking now. He's uh, he he got famous for being in the movie, almost famous. And OK, he did, he, he did some other stuff from that movie. Um, but yeah, he's he's really good. WTF is a good podcast. Um, I'm also a huge nerd. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was going to ask you about the D and D. Yeah, so my brother got me into Dungeons and Dragons, more specifically, just tabletop role playing uh, in general. I guess five or six years ago now. And, yeah, I played uh, that in middle school, and uh, it kind of fell out of fashion. I got involved with some other stuff, never came back to it. But uh, it's funny how much it's fallen, risen back into fashion now. Right. You know, right. Stranger no, Things know. definitely kicked it off, but I think just the uh, allure of of nerddom in general with Marvel and star Wars and everything kicking back off has really mm -hmm. brought that stuff to the forefront. But, you know, critical role is a really famous dungeons and dragons podcast. It's got a bunch of Hollywood voice actors in it, but There's one that I really listen. like is uh, not another D and D podcast. That's a really good one. <laughs> Well, there's a, one of the podcasts I listen to is a guy named Pat Flynn at Smart Passive Income, and he talks about business ideas and things like that. And um, he started a YouTube channel, and he kept it quiet for a while, for about a month or so. But it's all about Pokemon. And uh, he, had been, he had been on vacation in um, England with some friends, and their kids, they went and bought Pokemon packs and sat down with the kids and opened it up and 
He said, I was just sitting there watching this family having so much fun. And he said, I remember him as a kid. So he got some and him and his kids started doing it. And so uh, I, think, I think his 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 YouTube channel is a deep pocket, uh, deep pocket monster. Deep pocket monster. Pokemon means pocket monster. And oh, so yeah. that's, that's what he does is he's got this uh, and he just started it. And he's by no means one of the biggest ones on there. But uh, so if you're into Pokemon, there's your one. Yeah, I'll check that out. Yeah, one of my one of my dreams kind of is to uh, start a podcast and just start a D&D YouTube channel. Yeah. And uh, I'm really just by putting out the energy of, hey, I'm a D&D nerd. Just everybody I meet, they all fucking know that I love D&D. <laughs> Doesn't matter who it is. But, you know, it's kind of gotten me some some cool opportunities. You know, uh, people that I meet are interested in it because they've heard about it these days in pop culture. And uh, last year during COVID, I volunteered to run Dungeons and Dragons for some middle schoolers in Napa. Oh, wow. And now that's coming back around as a paid opportunity. You know, nice. so and that really plays into another dream that I have, which would be to like start a foundation or a nonprofit for Dungeons and Dragons with teenage and younger kids to help them rehabilitate. Uh, yeah. There's a lot to be said for, um, you know, role-playing as a form of therapy. It really oh, helps people separate themselves from their own experiences and, you know, talk through some of those emotions and stuff. So, and when you're doing it in the context of, an orc at a bar talking to fair wench that's about to pour you some ale. It, you know, it's fun and it's light, but you can also get out the heavy stuff and some of the aggression. So it's some really cool stuff you can do with it. So could you do it like over a zoom? I think that you could, you know, it would be hard to start a nonprofit like that. No, uh, I mean, play D and D. Oh yeah. 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 So that's what we do. Um, I started, running the game or a dungeon master or a game yep, master, if master. You will. That's, that's what i remember i started doing that almost two years ago and it is pretty unheard of for a game to go for two years but i started the game with my brother nathan cook my cousin wes snyder and um you know wilco uh um cole duncan and some other people and it's kind of gone yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's around. Um, yeah, I know him well. It's gone in and out, and we've lost some people over the years. But I've been running that for, um, you know, almost two years now. Very long campaign, and of course, when I moved to California, we it was like, is this the end of it? You know, right? Um, but it wasn't. We there are digital platforms that are really good for playing D and D, and they've really came into use with COVID because game shops in a lot of places across the country, at least the more populated areas aren't open. Um, so you have to turn to websites like roll 20 yeah. or what we use called fantasy grounds. And you know, the screen is a table. You've got dice on one side, a chat box, you've got all your character information and you use discord or something to talk. So, well, I was surprised. Uh, this paradise games. Mm -hmm. When I first moved to town, I was like, what? And I went in there and looked around. I'm like, <clears throat> and so, and uh, I would be downtown and I'd look over here, especially in the evenings. That place would be packed. 
Man, it's the build it, it and they packed. will come. Build it and they will come. There are closeted nerds in every community. <laughs> well, what blew me away was I, I got to watching it, you know, and you get the you get the typical stereotypical, you know, guy who's playing games like that. Uh, you know, he's still in his pajamas and whatever, you know, he's overweight, he's over there playing these games. You got little kids. No, that's not I mean, there's guys like that there, but you know, there's I was over at uh, the bar here one night having a couple of beers this guy's like okay well i gotta go so i said where are you going he said i'm gonna go over here and play magic uh paradise game dude was like my age and uh, just a normal looking dude you know and uh i was just like man this game these games or these type of games appeal to a lot of people and i think it's more than just the fantasy i think there's a community around it and absolutely i think that's what it is is the the and, and it's not just a community locally it's a community that if i travel someplace else and i can pick up a game there i have something in common with all these people we have this community and it's okay and i i so i'm all for it as far as starting a nonprofit, dude what i would do is i just start doing what you want to do then once it gets to the point that okay i need to incorporate and do this nonprofit then do that it's it's the build it and they will come thing that you're talking about just yeah just start doing it just start volunteering it for i don't know places and maybe a children's hospital or something like that uh you know, you'll find your target audience that you're dreaming about just put it together and then as it grows and you have to do it do the nonprofit thing yeah i've got two ideas that are that are very different one of them is start the nonprofit. Um, you know, it, it could even be for adults, but, to, you know, to kind of work through, uh, kind of a therapeutic, um, you know, goal regimen, I can't find the right words, but you get what I mean through dungeons yeah. and dragons. Uh, but also another one is to start like a game shop, like you're talking about, but in yeah. the form of like a tavern and you can, uh, you know, you can order a beer and order some food while you sit there and play games. Yeah. So there's a there's a bar in Vancouver, Washington. Uh, I can't think of the name of it right now, but because I was involved in roller derby, right? Yeah, and yeah. There's some nerds in roller derby. Let me tell you, there's some awesome. nerds in roller derby, and there and I hate that term nerd. I don't know why, and it's more of an endearing term for people now. Uh, but uh, maybe it's because it was such a negative term when I was a kid. Um, lame Dr. Seuss, right? Didn't he? Come up with that everything term? else is right now. That or, <laughs> Mr. Potato Head. I just caught a little bit of that, so I don't know all of it, but I, I just turn the channel. Well, I don't even turn the channel anymore. Just click something else. But uh, he started a bar in Washington, and you walk in, it looks like a sports sports bar. There's TVs everywhere. But it doesn't take you too long to realize there's no sports on here. And what it is, it's a game bar. So you go in there and you tell him what game you want to play. He hands you those controllers. He tells you if there's a screen available, or you, you just pick your screen. And you sit down and play the game. Uh, Levi said they were up there playing uh, Mario Kart one day. They were just sitting in the bar playing Mario Kart, and he just got all these games. And he'll stream like a roller derby events, and they'd have like a the Rose City Rollers would have a big bout coming up because they were they were national level. Of course, wow. this was all pre-COVID. Yeah, no, they were. Uh, I think world champions two years in a row. Um, 
so they're, they're top elite roller derby. Dang, that's cool. Roller yeah. derby is cool, man. Yeah, I uh, I got to, that's how I got into it. Was I got in I got into announcing for the Rose City Rollers, and you know I didn't know anything about roller derby. All I knew is somebody wanted somebody on a microphone. I said, "Yeah, I'll do it." They interviewed me. <laughs> Scott, the extrovert, <laughs> right? So I'm down there learning roller derby and doing play-by-play or color commentary. And uh, a guy from the Rat City Rollers up in Seattle come down, and he and I were talking because a lot of times they'll bring an announcer too, so you're guest announcing. And uh, he's asked me, "So how'd you get into this gig?" I just told him. And he's like, "Really?" I said, "Yeah." He said, well, that's a pretty sweet gig to start out at. I mean, being in the largest league in the world. I said, what? He said, Rose City is the largest roller derby league in the world. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, shit. Now I'm feeling the pressure, man. <laughs> so I announced for them for about a year, and it was all volunteer. And uh, had some things going on in my life. So I just they call it retiring when you leave roller derby. <laughs> retiring. <laughs> It's a loss. <laughs> right. So I retired. And then a couple of years later, uh, a team started up in Vancouver. And so I went and talked to them. And the girl that was interviewing me for that, she didn't know me. She said, well, we're already talking to a couple of people. We'll come on by. Well, I walk in and there's like three of the Derby girls from Road City that was a part of it that was helping get this league started. One of them was smacked it sideways. She was actually spon- sponsored by Rydell at one point uh micro bruiser <laughs> and dude like, i love how like i love how professional wrestling this is right up until you get so to much. the not real part because it's really fucking real <laughs> it's really real it is really real but yeah the whole thing i think that's the thing that um they were talking about would roller derby ever make it to an olympic sport which i think it should be that would be cool it would be really but cool. <laughs> in order for it to do that, I think they would have to drop these uh, these names uh, for people to take it more seriously. Because when I'm sitting there and I'm talking about, yeah, you know, liquor and split come up to Ophelia Melons and did this, you know, people's like, what? So I think they went back to normal names and started using normal names instead of these character names, these personas. It would probably be taken more seriously on channels like ESPN because they're not going to get up there and start calling these names out. And, uh, and, and that's, well, been... I mean, my question would be like, if they really want to embrace that, I mean, you know, think about professional wrestling, you know, it got big off of crap like that, but eventually the curtain got pulled off and you got to see, you know, the guy behind the curtain wizard of Oz style. And you realize, okay, well, this is, goofy and vince mcmahon's gonna sell out and now everything is pg rated and now you guys can't even cuss or smash beers up against your head and it's not fun anymore but roller derby is real and they make it entertaining so i'm it just it blows my mind that you know ufc's real and they try to make it entertaining you know they try to add drama to it all the time right and it's on the national stage it's on television why why do you think roller derby is not more popular than it is why do you think it's not picked up by some of the bigger networks well part of it is you go back into the 60s and 70s and roller derby was more wwe uh-huh. It was more, it was more scripted. I mean, they, they had to roll banks. The girls were grabbing people off by their hair, throwing them over the rails. They were drop kicking them in the middle of the track. It was, it was, <laughs> it was more just like that. Uh, 
And so when a lot of people hear about it, who's who's from that era, that's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about the Bay City Bombers. They're thinking about all those old leagues. Um, now, fast forward, it is taken more seriously in some areas, especially where it's bigger, and especially when it gets on the national level when they start doing the world tournaments. And in other countries, it is bigger. Uh, I do know that they had, because it was going to be televised or broadcasted, they they would not use the persona names of the girls. And they all had to get different jerseys with their name on there so that the announcers would use those names instead of the personas. I go back and forth on the personas um, because it's definitely, you, you see this, you see this derby girl come in and all of a sudden she's putting on her gear and now she becomes smack you sideways, you know? she takes on that persona and it's now this eagle, it's this identity and she rolls out on that track and that's who she is. Uh, and that's the other beautiful thing I love about roller derby is that you've got girls in there who uh, barely afford to pay the dues, right? And you've got girls in there who have PhDs <clears throat> and in no other world would they ever have met or become friends, but they have a tighter group of friends than they do outside of, of Derby. I mean, it's like a family. One of those girls needs well, it's help. Kind of, it's, they all do that. It's kind of like what you were saying with D&D. &D, sorry to cut you off there, but like, you know, when you sit down at that table and you're a character, it doesn't matter if you can barely pay the rent or if you've got a PhD. You're, you're now, you have the camaraderie of these people around you and you're in this world and everybody is the same. You know, when, when they personify themselves and get into character, and then step out on, you know, doing the roller derby thing, they're all equal and they're all in this together. And, you know, it also, the veil of all that, of that persona probably also helps some of them amp up to be more aggressive and to get kind of their head in the game, you know? Well, there's a, uh, I think it's, it, it, it might still be on YouTube. I don't know, but Rose City Rollers have a movie that was made about them. But uh, in it, there's a phrase in roller derby that goes like this, roller derby saved my soul. And, um, and you'll hear stories about girls who came out of addiction or very abusive relationships or what have you uh, that, you know, were very shy and, and, and who got into roller derby. And it not only helped them, this persona helped them on the track, it helped them off the track. It helped them in the relationship. It helped them in their jobs. It helped them get better careers because now they have more confidence. I mean, when you can put on a skate and go on a pack and, and do what they do, you you have to build some confidence. Uh, my daughter, I'd been announcing for a couple of years, <clears throat> and I'd said something a couple of times to her about getting involved with it. And then one day I was up uh, before I moved back. She said, I think we'll sign up for softball again, Dad, because she played fast pitch softball. And I said, well, why? And she's like, well, you know, I need something to do. I need to be active. I said, well, you played slow pitch softball or recreationally and you about died because it's so slow. The fast pitch softball girl. Do me a favor. We have roller derby practice on Tuesday night. Just meet me out there. Just look at it. If you like it, I'll get you a talk with the girl. She's like, Dad, I've never roller skated, but maybe a couple of times when I was a little girl. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Just go on out there. She's at that track, and um, 
you can just see the countenance on her face changing. Oh my God. And then finally she says, can you really get me a tryout? I'm like, yeah, I can get you a tryout. She said, what am I going to do for equipment? So I called Dolly over there and I called a couple of other girls over there and I'm like, she's wanting to try out and she doesn't need, she doesn't have any equipment. Next thing you know, she's got like a bag of equipment in front of her. And they're like, here, you know, they put it together. And so she went out there and they taught her how to skate. And within six months, she was jumping folding chairs. (laughs) She went from, I can't skate to jumping folding chairs. And uh, I think with the, in the next year, she, I think she was team captain. She got MVP a couple of times. Uh, Did you ever see that picture of her in the black eye? You may have showed it to me years back. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, she uh, she was in the pack one day, and she was coming around and got knocked down. And she jumped back up, got back on the track, scored a few more points, and then she was went over to the side, and one of her teammates was like, <laughs> he goes by Lucky. Like, Lucky, I think you need to go see the paramedic. <laughs> her eye had swollen up like this. It's almost swollen shut. <clears throat> And uh, I took a, they took a picture of it, and I had it put on the back of sweatshirts with her name Lucky on it. <laughs> <laughs> Gave them his awesome. gifts. Uh, but she, uh, I asked her, I said, well, do you know who done it? She said, no, Dad. If I'd known who done it, I'd have got injected. She said, I, I would have hunted them down and paid them back. But, uh, <laughs> but now, as violent as it is, there are rules. You can't fight. So, you know, back in the yeah. – when there was the Bay City Bombers and all that way back when they used to fight and stuff. So, and they are very strict on the rules. They're very, very big on safety. Um, so as violent as it is, it's, it's great. I think the other beautiful thing I liked about roller derby is uh, watching little girls, you know, these little girls who uh, from very shy or very protected or, uh, type of girls you know they're just very shy watching them come in and some of them I knew because their parents had asked me about it and they come in and I said hey so if you find a, a derby girl you like let me know and I'll introduce you to her and we'll get her autograph and by the end of the bout these girls are coming up hey I want to meet micro bruiser I want to meet uh Barbie or I want to meet so I'd take them over there and they would always take time to sit down and chat with these little girls and inspire these little girls and uh no it's a it's a sport i absolutely love and i i can't wait for it to get started back up again that's cool i'm surprised that you've not got involved in the i mean wherever the closest one is in the athens area Chattanooga, Knoxville. yeah yeah Yeah. that's what i would assume (laughs) yeah uh hard knocks is in knoxville um there was a girl here from athens that actually skated with them well rolled with them and Chattanooga uh, Roller Girls. I did go down to out there. Uh, the the hard thing about roller derby to get into, what makes it hard for a guy to get into it is, uh, and I lucked out. And ironically, my roller derby name was Lucky. Uh, but I lucked out because they just gave me a shot. But any guy that's involved in women's flat track roller derby is usually dating someone or married to someone that's involved with roller derby. Or he's involved with the men's roller derby and he's volunteering with the girls' roller derby. I'm an anomaly. Uh, how I got involved with this, the only reason I got was able to get that head announcer gig in Vancouver was because the girls from Road City spoke up for me and I got the gig before I left that night. Uh, so 
that that's what makes it hard to go down here to Chattanooga and say, hey, I'm Lucky Van Tuckia or whatever my derby name would be here. Uh, I'm not known. Yeah. So I'd have to go down there and volunteer and do a bunch of things. And, you know, an hour away isn't something I just want to go volunteer two or three times a, night, a week. Yeah, that'd be a lot. <clears throat> Somebody said something about starting one here in Athens. And it is it is a high school sport in Texas. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. but um, And I think it should be a high school sport because the girls that play volleyball, there's girls that's going to go play volleyball, there's girls that's going to be on the swim team, and there's girls that's going to be in softball, and then there's girls who's not going to do any of those sports. Roll a derby appeals to them, you know, and – these are these girls that sometimes are seen as whatever the outcasts in school. A lot of them are not everybody in roller derby is like that, but that sport appeals to them. It gives them that community that that home, that camaraderie that they don't, that they don't feel comfortable in because they don't, they're not shaped like the swim team girls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. seems like you might tap into like the, uh, the powder puff, football kind of community that's popped up a few times, for instance, at McMinn. I don't know if it's still going, but when I was there, they had a, a league for a couple of years, so to speak. Well, the rugby team here at McMinn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget yeah, I thing. think that does the same thing. Uh, I mean, there's girls who's not going to go play rugby, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the cheerleader girls are not, probably not going to be out there playing rugby. Yeah. Uh, but that team, they've been state champions I don't know how many times men wow yeah and somebody said well but there's not that many female rugby teams in the state of tennessee okay they're still state champions I mean, yeah why do you why do you want to minimize their achievement and that's yeah. what i don't get is somebody you do something great and somebody tries to minimize it and say well yeah but you know he's blah 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 oh okay he still did it yeah you know? yeah uh, a friend of mine there's a there's a national contest with yoga, a uh, yoga magazine, and if you answer like three short questions, you have three short answers to three questions, submit a couple photos, and if they pick to feature you, then there's like a ten thousand dollar award and you get featured in this national magazine. Well, uh, this friend of mine who who did it never puts themselves out, never but they put themselves out there and they submitted their own profile to this. And we were talking and she said, you know, whether or not I win and get featured, I've still won because I stepped out of my comfort zone. I faced yeah, the fear. Absolutely. Right. Which yeah. Winning goes back you know, when we started our discussion, you stepped out of your comfort zone and at 26, I said, I'm out of Athens. Not that I hate Athens, not that I'm never coming back to Athens. It's just I need to do something else for myself. Yeah, and, you know, the first step to that, I think, was having to get to a point of confidence within myself where it didn't matter the expectations around me. It didn't matter what everybody else wanted me to do. I needed to find a way to walk my own path and do what I wanted to do so that just for me, only for me personally, I could feel like this was a win, you know, getting on that plane, despite everybody telling me that it was a bad idea to leave my full-time job. It was taking a step back. I wasn't going to be able to make it. California's expensive. I felt like getting on 
well, technically getting in the car, but I remember the day that my mom had got in her rental car and was going to go back to the airport to fly back to Athens. We had just drove across the country, got to Napa, spent a few days and she was leaving, you know, it's early in the morning, it's dark and I'm giving her a hug. You know, I've got a selfie of it. She's crying, of course. Right. Um, she gets in the car and leaves and that's a heavy moment for me. But as soon as I turned around, took that first step back in the house, it felt like a win because yeah. that was the cutoff point. You know, the hero's journey that was taking the step out of your comfort zone into the unknown. Um, that was me in the Marine Corps. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I, I weighed, when I got to Paris Island, I weighed 129 pounds. <clears throat> and so I'd always been real little. I've always been, I'd always been little. I had a fat phase a few years ago, but <clears throat> I've always been real little. And everybody told me I couldn't do it. And when I was leaving to go to Paris Island, no, there's still time. You can back out. You don't want to do this. You're not going to be able to do it. The Marine Corps is the toughest branch in boot camp, blah, blah, blah. I had all these naysayers. And one day my dad said, uh, he was trying to talk me out of it. I said, dad, I got something to prove. He said, you don't have anything to prove to anybody. I said, no, I got something to prove to me. And, uh, you know, getting on that plane, uh, meeting that uh, Marine in, at the airport in North Carolina, getting on that bus. I mean, these are all steps. Getting on those yellow footprints, walking through that portal for the first time. Uh, it was a huge step. And it was and I and this is one of the reasons it bothers me. And I'm not the only veteran. We all got different reasons, but. I don't like it when people say, oh, thank you for your service. You know, uh, I, I didn't serve for you. I didn't serve for this uh, idea of flag and country and patriotism. That's not why I joined the Marine Corps. I joined the Marine Corps because in my mind, if I could walk across that parade deck with an Eagle Globe and anchor in hand, then I'm never too little to do anything. And I can do what I want. And so uh, that that was my stepping out into the unknown. Matter of fact, 30 years ago today, I was in combat. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That was a sobering thought yesterday. One of the Marines I was with posted some pictures. Uh, March 5th is when we started the attack, breached the minefields. It was about 100 hours of combat, so we'd still be in that. I'd be, oh, I'd be taking artillery and mortar fire today. <laughs> That's what I'd be doing today. Man. Tomorrow we'd be uh, pulling up onto uh, Kuwait, uh, uh, Kuwait City. Yeah, we'd be pulling up to Kuwait. Our original orders would go into the city and take an airfield, and they stopped us right outside this road because the idea is if you corner a dog, it'll fight. If you give it a way to run, it'll run. Well, it ran, and uh, the battle that ensued there got Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell and George Bush and a lot of them into some deep water. Uh, you can Google it later. It's called the Highway of Death. Uh, but it's uh, engaged in that fight. We were uh, that was more mechanized and air power than it was anything else. But uh, I was there. It was loud. Yeah. But, so that's what know, it was for me. Well, I know this is a big question, but how do you think that that you know, changed you. Cause I mean, I know that there's, 
there's veterans that go into the service and never see combat and you went into the service and you saw some pretty damn significant combat. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you one way it changed me. Uh, I live every day. The, the night before we left, the, the night before we're still waiting on the final order is, is whether or not we're going to go. And we're, we're all staged up there at the, at that line. And they gather us together for a briefing. And they said, according to our, uh, according to the combat estimates, 80% of you will not be here tomorrow at this time. Wow. So you're, you're like, oh. So it's kind of like after that, every day is a, even though I've got dark days, I've got, you know, there's been some times I've battled depression. I don't think it's a result of that. I don't know. But I always look at life like I should have been dead 30 years ago. And so, you know, the last 30 years of my life has just been, you know, a gift. Some of it sucked, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but when you're looking through that lens of it being a gift, you know, even the shitty days are meaningful, right. you know? Yeah, yeah, I know that there's one of the podcasts I listen to. He's there in California. Uh, he's a former pastor. His name's Rob Bell. And he was talking about the books that he had written. And one of the books he held up was his first book. And he's like, uh, would I have written this book today? No, I'm not the same guy as I was today. But I love that guy. If I had not been that guy, I wouldn't be this guy. So if I hadn't gone through the shitty days, I wouldn't be here today with the perspective that I have on things. Uh, or, you know, yeah, the perspective I have on things. Or with the ability to set back and say, okay, maybe – Maybe there's more to this story than I thought because that shitty day taught me there was more to it than I thought. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's so yeah. I think it changed me in that manner. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I'm I I, I finally because some people finally convinced me to get, get in touch with the VA. So I've actually got a meeting with the VA on the 16th to determine if I've got PTSD. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, a lot of the people who don't have degrees in it, not a lot, there's been a few of them like, oh, yeah, you absolutely do. <laughs> and uh, one one friend even told me, they said, well, look, think about it this way. Even if you don't have it from combat, you've got it just from being a Marine because they changed you. You went in one way and you came out a different way. And that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, just from the psychological standpoint of what they do, is they build they build in to you this ethos that you're part of this you're standing on the soldiers of marines before you and there's marines going to stand on your soldiers i mean you walk into a bar and you got two guys from different eras they both find out they're marines next thing you know they're buddies uh my air force buddies my army buddies my navy buddies they don't have that same camaraderie and they tell me that I said, I see that among Marines. There's something different about you guys. Yeah. So, well, I, I can tell you as a social worker, you know, I say this all the time and I think sometimes it falls on deaf ears, but, um, you know, I think everybody needs counseling. And, you know, the thing is, is there's always something to learn. And we are creatures that, in order to stay stimulated and in some ways stay young, we need to learn throughout our lives. And 
you know, counseling doesn't have this masculine appeal and it gets a bad rap from people that think they can take care of themselves. But I mean, counseling is really just learning about yourself, you know, it is. And, and I am in counseling, uh, part of this, the, the VA is like, Hey, we want you to start some counseling anyways. And then you got this other thing coming up for an assessment for PTSD, but in the meantime, start this counseling. And the funny thing is, uh, I have one friend who knew about it and it's just cause she, I just hadn't come up with anybody else. And I'd had an appointment. And so I was at the bar and there's a bunch of other people there. And she's like, so how was your day? And she was covertly asking me about the, my how I thought my counseling session was without announcing it to everybody that I'm in a counseling. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so she's been <laughs> polite. And I was just open and told her everything about it. She said, well, I didn't know this was public. I said, well, I have no reason to be ashamed of it. I have no reason to hide it. I mean, uh, and I guess that comes back from when I used to be in the ministry. I, I studied a lot about counseling. I studied a lot about therapy. I tried to do as little as possible, especially with somebody that was going to be involved in the congregation that I was involved in because I, I just had this fear in my mind that I would be up there speaking about something and be like, well, He's talking about me and my counseling session. So I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and no, I'm really conflict of interest there. Yeah. Conflict of interest. I don't want to get too, too in depth. And um, and I was telling my counselor, you know, when we first got started, the background, I said, so I say all that to say uh, I've been on that side. And the thing that frustrates me about, about it is when I'm even, when I've gone through my dark times, my depression is I know the answers. You know, I, but the benefit to counseling is it, it helps me talk through it. It helps me, it reminds me and uh, it reminds you a good counselor is not giving you the answers. Exactly. I was going to say that counselors giving you the right questions. And, uh, and so, and they're giving you that, giving you that guide through the forest. They're not taking you through the forest. They're just giving you that guide. Here's a, here's a roadmap, and uh, you can do what you want with it. So, yeah, uh, a good a know, good counselor should be guiding you. You know, because if you're going to make actual sustainable change, some nobody can convince you to do that. They can right. show you the way, but then you have to be the one to decide for yourself. It has to be a good idea for you. That's the only way you're ever going to make any kind of significant change. Right, and I had that discussion years ago. This girl was talking about. Uh, was in Washington State. And she's like, I wish I could quit smoking. I said, well, you can. No, I can't. I've tried. I can't quit. I said, yes, you can. She says, no, I've never been able to quit anything in my life. I said, you still shit in your pants? <laughs> <laughs> what? I said, do you still wear diapers? Well, no. I said, you stopped that as a baby. Here you are, a 30-something-year-old woman, and you can't quit smoking? <laughs> Yeah. You know, all that said, I do smoke, but, uh, but you can, you're right until you want to make the change in your life, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And as, you know, as, as life gets more complex, we try to get more settled in, I think, you know, and you kind of, you dig that hole and you get down in it and you think this is my life. This is where I am. And 
hell, I can't change this. I mean, I quit smoking, leave Athens, Tennessee, go into the Marines. I can't do that. I'm here. This is my world. You know, this is my bubble. And it, and the you know, people it, around you uh, confirm that bias. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, absolutely. It's the whole crab in the bucket. You ever heard that crab in the bucket analogy? Crabs in the bucket? Yeah. That's what it is. Uh, have you read Hillbilly Elegy or seen that movie yet? No, I've heard about that a few times. I'm going to write it down. Yeah, write that down and uh, you'll be like, maybe my life wasn't that fucked up. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. You'll be like, I get it. (laughs) Well, you know, you are bought. It's interesting because you're bought into your own reality or your current reality, but other people are too, you know, and there are the people that love you, the people that care about you, even the people that hate you sometimes, they have a vested interest in you staying exactly where you are. Yeah. And, you know, it, that was one thing that was hard for me to, to kind of shake that off is, you know, I started talking about my political transformation and got derailed, but you know, that was, that was a big step for me because, you know, when you have made your thoughts public, it doesn't matter if from birth you've been buying into whatever your family thinks, because that's what I had doing. People have a vested interest in you being who you are. You know, you're grace and black. You believe what we believe and we accept you for that, especially in the South, because the South's a very traditional place. Right. It's all about it's a very tribalistic place. And if you're not one of us then you're an outsider, um, but well, it was the it, same thing with leaving too. You know, yeah. I mean, people had a vested, vested interest in me staying there. They wanted to be close to me. They wanted to know what I was doing. They wanted to check up on me. So, you know, both of those things you have to kind of say, okay, I have to make this change regardless of what other people want me to do. So. You're right. You're very much right about the tribalistic thing here, because I mean, there are families here who's been here hundreds of years. Oh yeah. Uh, and that was something people didn't get in the Northwest when I would talk to them about going to decoration. And for those of you who might be watching decoration in the South is every spring, the churches have graveyards around and they all have certain days or certain weekends where everybody who's got people buried there shows up and they put flowers on it and they have food and they eat. It's, it's a thing. And uh, we do it. And more than likely, Anybody buried in that graveyard is probably related to you in some way. That's just the way it is. It's true. But <laughs> uh, uh, you're right. People have a vested interest in you. Well, you have a vested interest in you being who you truly are. And people have a vested interest in you being who, they, who they've got you to be. Um, so this is going to be and the I first I think sometimes time. that gets in the way. It gets in the way. Of you being who you, you have, truly are. It does because you, you have this... Uh, obligation or whether it's a, it's a real obligation or perceived mm-hmm. to maintain the family line, you know, yep. the, and, and you don't want to disrespect the family, the traditions or, and, and there's sometimes you'll do things and they're like, Oh, so what we taught you wasn't good enough or you're too good to do how to work, how we work. No, it's not that I'm too good. And it's not that it's just, I, I need this for me. Um, so this will be the first time I've said this. There's a lot of firsts in this podcast. Uh, this will be the first time I've said this publicly. I recently made a, a huge transition. So I, you know, I used to be a Southern Baptist pastor. Um, and it's not that I ever, I got, it's not that I got mad at 
Southern Baptist or Christianity or anything like that. I just started doing some deeper diving studies and stuff like that because that was something that I used to just, it, it just, it just done a lot for me as far as the study. And, and, and I'm like, that's how I get nerdy. I get nerdy going into a lot of things as far as scriptural or things faith wise. In doing so, I got to the point where I'm just like, I can't believe the New Testament anymore. And I can't be a Christian anymore. And uh, I'm more leaning towards Judaism and the Old Testament. I put more into the Old Testament than I do the New Testament. It's just, it's just a lot in the New Testament that, that I found out about. And I'm just like, I can't do this anymore. And uh, let that come out public. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, dude. Once that came out public here, not as public as this is, but once that came out public, you talk about a backlash. Oh yeah, a yeah. huge backlash, and that was a huge uh, <clears throat> transformation. But I had to do it for me because I, I couldn't sit here and keep that a secret anymore and say no. This is why I don't want to go to your church. I I finally had because it was holding me back, so I finally had to just say no. And let it be known. Well, I mean, I'm on a similar tra trajectory, and this will be one of the first times I've made this public too. But, you know, um, I mean, at this point, I do kind of consider myself to be borderline agnostic, and not because that's a hard line thing, but because I don't ever want to mindlessly believe anything. Right. Know? I don't, I don't ever want to believe anything because that's what the people around me believe or because that's what my family believes. So I consider myself from a religious or a spiritual standpoint to be a seeker. You know, yeah. I want to truly understand Christianity and all the denominations from in Protestantism and even Catholicism, um, you know, instead of mindlessly following them. But I also don't want to be even in that large bubble and discount all of the other religions that people legitimately grow up in and never stop believing in until their death, just like a lot of Christians do. I don't want to discount all those and never discover what that actually means. And I'm right. sure in some of your studies, you've, you have explored a lot of those other religions. And that's something that, you know, I guess is just a hobbyist or a, or a personal exploration that I want to explore before I land on, you know, hopefully before I die, I find one that I actually do believe in um, and really want to get behind. And maybe it will go back to Protestantism and I will, you know, get back uh, kind of on that train. But right now I would consider myself a seeker for sure. Well, the thing I like about the Judaism is uh, they don't proselytize. And if you don't believe the Jewish faith, you're not you're not destined to hell. They're, I mean, they don't. They don't think that you, you're a Buddhist. Okay. Were you a shitty person? Well, you're yeah. not. Oh, well then. Okay. Okay. You don't have to be Jewish. Um, that's the way they are. Where, and, and even like, you know, uh, and there's a debate as whether or not Buddhism is a religion or not. It's definitely a philosophy. It definitely has some religious undertaking, but I mean, it's the same way. Okay. You don't have to be a Buddhist. You can, <laughs> you can do, what you need to do, but uh, don't be a cruel person, which I think is a pretty good rule in life. You know, just don't be a cruel person. Be someone yeah. who's nice. Um, and on top of that, one of the one of the teachings in um, in Judaism is a phrase called tikkum ulam, and uh, I'm sure I butchered it, but it basically means make the world a better place. 
you know? So if, yeah. so if you just did those two things, don't be a <clears throat> shitty person and make the world a better place. And you don't have to do something huge to make the world a better place. It's as little as, you know, you got that kid an ice cream. Yeah. You know? Well, and sometimes making the world a better place means making yourself a better person. Well, because yeah. if you're a shitty person to everybody you meet and you project that out into the world, whether you're going to Zaxby's every Wednesday or whatever, then you are adding negativity into the world. So, you know, kind of like, you know, I don't, I'm not a, <laughs> a scholar in Buddhism, but I know a lot about it is self-fulfillment and trying to be a better person within yourself. And that is how you contribute towards a better world, you know? Well, and, and that's the yin and yang of it. Um, when I am in my dark moments or when I've been in my dark moments, one of the ways I've got out of it is uh, doing something for someone else. And um, even though I'm still not liking myself, right. I'm going to go out and do something. And that makes me like myself better. So it's that yin and the yang there, that energy that you, you put this out into the world and this world puts this back into you and, yeah. and it supports you. So yeah, if you're a shitty person, uh, what's that one phrase? Uh, there's a, that guy, Jordan Peterson. You ever listen to him? No, <laughs> man. I don't know. You gosh, you gotta find that Jordan Peterson. Um, he, I'm taking notes, man. <laughs> he, he's a clinical psychologist that blew to stardom on the internet a few years ago because of a, a political stance he took on free speech in Canada and uh, end up touring the world doing lectures and people are coming to his lectures. But one of the things, and he was talking about the activists because he taught at university and he's talking about the activists and all that stuff. And he's like, you know, if you, if you want to change the world, start with you. I mean, Who's going to listen to you? You're you're a university student. Start with you first. You know, make up your own damn room before you come out here telling the whole world how to, how to have their room. And there's some truth to that. You know, you got to start with you. And and that's the hard thing for me is uh, what your dad and I are about the same age, although he's just a few months older. So he's 51. That's good. He just turned 51, February 28th. Right. And, uh, <laughs> I, I look back on my life sometimes, especially when I'm in those moments where I don't like me. Yeah. Uh, I look back on my life and I'm like, I've done some pretty cool shit. I've met some pretty cool people. There's a lot about me I should like. <laughs> and so yeah. I have to remind myself of that and just pull my pull myself out of it. And so I don't know, maybe. Uh, and, and I know that having been here before, uh, or haven't been there before, I'll be there again, you know? Yeah. And um, it's just a matter of picking yourself up and doing it again. <clears throat> yep, absolutely. So absolutely. your social and work, what did it focus on? So um, my bachelor's in psychology, I did master's of social work from University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And um, yeah, did you have a focus or? Yeah, so... First year is just foundational. And then second year, you have to pick whether you want to go micro or macro. So that's pretty self-explanatory. But for those that may not know, micro would be more one-on-one -on -one counseling type deal. Uh, and macro would be more uh, community development, policymaking, um, you know, nonprofit leadership, government leadership, things like that. And I went into macro. So, 
you know, I tend to, to be a big picture person and I really want to make change on a big picture level, though I do enjoy one-on-one -on -one interactions. Um, at least at the time I was afraid that it would be hard for me to not take that stuff home with me. Yeah. Now I think that I'm, you know, once again, you have to work on yourself. Big thing in counseling is you've, uh, this is not the official phrase, but you got to take care of your shit before you take care of other people's shit. You've got to work on yourself before you can ever help anybody truly work on themselves. Well, I um, heard once that um, <clears throat> it's kind of a, I don't know if it's an unspoken rule in therapy, but that therapists have therapists. You have to. Yeah. 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 And you can't, you know, you can't ex accept it. You mentioned this earlier, you know, you know what needs to happen, but that doesn't make it, that doesn't mean you can do it. You know, you have to have somebody else. I know what, you know, when I'm acting like an asshole, I know why, you know, I know why I'm in a bad mood. I understand that the failures of the day before have affected this day. And the fact that I was irresponsible and slept in too late and spent too much money on coffee has me irritable. That doesn't mean that I can just be like, get your shit together, Grayson, you know, all this, you know, you can't. And a week later, I'm probably going to do the same thing. You have to have somebody else to take you on that journey. Anyways. Um, I decided to go macro and I, I really like the macro stuff. You know, it's all about big change. It's about how to impact a lot of people by doing this one thing or by coordinating these multiple things and yeah. making big community level, state level, national level change is something that I'm very interested in. Um, so I really like the macro side of it. So, so you're going to uh, run for president. Well, you're not old enough to run for president. You got to wait for a few more years for you can do that. I got to wait a few more years and I got to keep building that confidence to get my name out there, man. I might list you. <clears throat> I might list you on my, cause I have to put the, you can put your committee. So I might put you on as a committee member for my yeah. candidacy. You, know, you can just pick me as your VP once you get elected, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have to, I think you have to, uh, I don't know if there's an age restriction on VP. You'd think there would be an age oh, restriction on VP. Is. But I think you'd have to uh, declare your candidacy on the FEC website, fec.gov. Uh, I'll um, write that down just for the hell of it. Well, I think you're uh, one of the things you can do because you, you've talked about your DND and you've talked about your podcast. And, and the thing is, the it's easier today than ever before to do any of that. I know it really is. So, and, and I mean, like, this is probably the first podcast that I've. Uh, actually done it over a year a lot of that was because when i was at denzo it was just getting crazy my work schedule was crazy and i could never plan a saturday or a sunday because of that and i just uh, it was just that was happening and then after i left denzo it was trying to get my business up and running and uh, it was getting darker and was getting colder and uh covid was still i don't know i don't know and this right here i didn't I didn't want to do podcasts this way because there's something different about being face to face with somebody. Yeah, definitely. So when you reached out to me, I thought, "Yeah, it'd be a good one to try it with." Um, and I actually, there's a New York Times best-selling author. He's written a book about the Battle of Athens. And <laughs> talk about confidence. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he uh, <laughs> he he was on Facebook, and my microphone stand not cooperating. Get this back up here. about doing this shit. yeah you're, you're reminding me that i need to set mine up i've got it on the 
the old stand and I have a stand just like yours, but I've, uh, I got this new headset for Christmas, so I've not been using this one as much. So, um, anyways, they said, yeah, this girl said, hey, you ought to put him on your podcast. She'd been on my podcast. Oh, okay. So I, I didn't know who he was. She just told me his name. He was on Facebook. So I just messaged him. He said, yeah, I'll do your podcast. And uh, I said, great. When are you going to be in Athens? Because I always do mine live. Blah, 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 blah. I don't know. This is before the COVID thing and all that stuff. And then uh, after we got done, chat and i thought i'm gonna look this guy up so i look him up he's a four times new york best-selling author um, wow four best-selling author for new york times best-selling yeah it, you get what i mean yeah <laughs> and i i looked over at my friend at the time and i said if i had known that i might not have reached out to him <laughs> it's uh you know and it's funny, you just got to put yourself out there. You know, that really is right. what it is. You know, you didn't know that. You reached out to him. He said, yes. You didn't know that you had been asked to announce for the top, you know, roller derby league in the world. And it went great. And when you knew it, you're like, holy shit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And this, you, when you look back on your life and you, you see those moments, uh, what was the practice I heard the other day? The Instead of writing out a to-do list, write out, uh, an idea list. So at the end of the day, you know, you just sit down and get ready for bed, write out the things you did that day. Uh, and it's a good reminder that, well, shit, I actually did some things that, that might've made a difference in somebody's life. Uh, yeah. And it could have been just something as simple as, you know, I, I helped a lady put her stuff in her car, an older lady. Well, you know, that probably made a huge difference in her life. Or, yeah, I talked to that random guy at the coffee shop because, you know, he probably needed somebody to just bullshit with for a little bit. Um, and then the other thing was is 10 ideas. It was, you know, every now and then just sit down. And whether it's, no matter what it is, just write down 10 ideas. And But back to the idea list versus the to-do list, he said the to-do list uh, depressed him because he never got everything. You, you just right out this big to-do list and then you look at it you're like well shit i didn't get anything done he said where when i yeah. got <laughs> at the end of the day when i wrote on my i did list well shit i got some things done yeah you know a to-do list kind of works in your professional life but it can be you know it's just it's unnecessary pressure in your personal life you know that's not real you know you're not going through life in your personal life ticking off goals it's not the same as sitting at a desk or being in the work zone and knowing what you need to get done it really is more about goal setting and looking at what you did compared to what you would like to do and right. i think you know looking at it like you said from 10 ideas like an idea perspective is much better than i have to do this and buy these things and talk to this person and do that you know it's you are it's too narrow well somebody asked me a few months ago and i, I had to I had to think on it for a while. Uh, what's your five-year goal? I'm like, I, I don't, I've never been this guy that set goals like that. I've just always been this guy. This is what I want to be. This is who I want to be. Uh, so I've, I've really been pondering, do I need to start setting goals more often? Or, uh, or do I just set this concept of who I want to live and be like, uh, and that's why I left the factory. I it just, it sucked the soul out of me. If I could have my dream life, it would be doing, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to do really just one thing. Be on stage behind a microphone or in front of a camera. 
That's all yeah. I've ever wanted to do. <laughs> That's all I've ever wanted to do. And um, so uh, now how to monetize that, how to grow that, uh, I got to figure that out. You could out. do it though. Like, you know, these days more than ever, you could do it. Well, and to your point, uh, there's like, I forgot how many million, there's like 1.7 million podcasts out there. Of those 1.7 million, only about, I think it's 300,000 are regularly updated. So, and um, and I forgot how, what percentage of those, when I say regularly updated, in other words, they've updated at least once within the last 90 days. These are the stats yeah. I heard today, but I heard the other day, don't quote me on them, I could be wrong. But the guy's point was, it's easy to look at the 1.7 million and say, oh, it's super saturated. You can't get in there and make a difference. But when you dig down into the numbers, you realize only 300,000 are actually doing anything. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I kind of hate this word uh, because it's how, how it's used in pop culture, but it's like, it's all about the grind, you know? Yeah. You have to find what you want to do and do it no matter who's listening or who's watching. And the fact that you have kept doing it is what is, is going to build stuff. You know, I used to uh, watch PewDiePie a lot. He's a YouTuber, yeah. you know, it's hard, you know, it's hard not to know who he is at this point, whether you watch him or not. Right. I think he's still, I think he's still the top YouTuber. There was some, a couple people on his tail, but you know, he's over a hundred million subscribers now. And if you go back and back and watch his early stuff, he was clearly just doing it for him because he wanted to do it. It looks like shit. It sounds like shit. And it's from so long ago that, you know, it looks like it was done on a potato, but you know, he built from that because he loved doing that thing. And because he was willing to make stuff on a schedule to try and build what he was trying to build his name and his recognition and his channel. And now he is where he is, you know, Oh, Joe Rogan. I mean, he yeah. did that for years before it blew up. And you go back and look at some of his earlier stuff, and it's literally a laptop camera <clears throat> set up on a coffee table and him and his buddy leaning up against the couch talking. I mean, well, and he's one of those people that have outgrown what he started. You know, it's almost weird to think about the fact that he was the host of Fear Factor. You right. know, people are like, what the hell is Fear Factor? You know, <laughs> Joe Rogan was he's outgrown it. that. Yeah. Joe Rogan's podcast has bigger, you know, name recognition probably these days than Fear Factor does for a lot of people. Oh, he does. Uh, but you're absolutely, there's some things you can skip the line on, right? Oh, like uh, getting that interview with that New York Times bestselling author. Yeah. You know, I probably was supposed to go to an agent. I probably was supposed to, you know, contact blah, blah, blah. I skipped the line. Mm -hmm. I need to do that again and get him back on now that I'm more confident doing this. Uh, <laughs> but and there's some things you just do the work and you do the work, not because you're expecting immediate gratification, but because you're, you enjoy it. Um, one of the ideas I had for the podcast was to find a, a local business, a restaurant, a bar around here, just set up my equipment, set up an extra microphone and uh, talk to everyone to come by and sit down and talk. <laughs> yeah. You know, swing on by. I'll be, I'll be live down at blah, blah, blah on this date. That's and such a I'll cool idea, man. Yeah, and I thought, well, what do I want to talk about when nobody's there? Well, I, I can find stuff to talk about when nobody's there, but I thought I'd bring in the Daily Post Athenian. You know, I can read and do commentary on the Daily Post Athenian. Then I'll, you know, all of a sudden your dad shows up. Hey, have a seat. What's going on? 
one of the funnest podcasts I did was uh, I had gone. Yeah, I had gone down to Chattanooga, the, the comedy show down there, the, the comedy club down there. And uh, I bought, I had gotten us tickets up front because that's that's the table they, they shit on, right? <laughs> so I yeah. could buy yeah. front tickets. And uh, the comedian's name was DJ Lewis, did a great show. The, the entire group that night did a great show, but the headliner was DJ Lewis. And uh, afterwards, and then they did. They picked on us. We went back and forth a little bit. Uh, and then afterwards, um, we're getting ready to leave. I said, hey, well, let's just go tell the comedians thank you. And uh, the group, I was like, can we do that? Well, they're standing right there. If we couldn't do it, then it took them out of <laughs> We go over and we thank them. We talk to them and stuff like that. Well, the next day, I thought, I want to put that guy on my podcast. Because DJ Lewis has an interesting story. He'd been in prison for years or uh, methamphetamine and stuff like that. And uh, and that's part of his show. And he's got a, it's an amazing story. And so I contacted him on Facebook. Say, hey, would you like to do a podcast? Yeah, great. And so um, I go down to Chattanooga, get a room at the Choo Choo. And um, we went over there to the, the behind the comedy store is a, behind that comedy place is a, uh, I think it's called Backstage Bar. I think that's the name of it. It's right there on Station Street. Is that the name of it? Anyways, the, yeah, Station Street. And so I set up my equipment at a picnic table right there on Station Street behind this bar. People's going back and forth. There's music playing. And me and DJ pulled up some beers. We just sat down and started talking. And we were just having a blast. And then his comedian friends come walking up because they're going to go to the club. They see him. Hey, what are you doing? So we're talking to people in the street. So they jump up and sit down and we just, it was just this fun improv thing. So that's, that's one of my ideas is if I can get that up and going, I think that'd be fun. That is freaking cool. Well, yeah. I need to get your dad on. Yeah, you should. He, I think actually the reason that I reached out to you is he was talking to me about your podcast wanting to come on, do stuff. You know, he's trying to build the East Tennessee outdoors. It's kind of grown from Blackie's hunting page to the East Tennessee outdoors. And he's he looked up to... on that name. Yeah. He really on the domain. <laughs> yeah. On the domain name. It's surprising that it's not already a thing, but uh, he's, he's really wanting to expand it and get other people involved. So he'd be a good one. Yeah. And, and we you guys talk can talk that. politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I I wanted to go back, Scott, to what you said about the five-year goal, because that was interesting. I wanted to say that, um, you know, when I was going through school and everything, I had like a five-year plan, two-year plan, whatever. And, you know, I was still very much in the mindset of, okay, I got to do what mom says I need to do. I got to do what dad, grandparents, what the family wants me to do. I got to go to school. I got to get a degree. I got to get a job. I got to find a girlfriend. I got to get married. I got to get a house, you know, all that shit, the American dream, but uh, yeah, exactly. But I mean, recently, you know, obviously with all this that I've been doing, I've realized that the, the five-year plan, that idea is one of the things that made me feel trapped you know, it wasn't right. just the place, it was the idea. And I almost feel like it, you know, this could just be me. I'm sure some people find security in a five-year plan. Yeah. Uh, but for me, it makes me feel trapped and it, it almost goes against like human nature 
you know, what you said about, I want to, I want to be like, I'm looking more towards who I want to be than what I want to be. Right. And I think that that is, that's much more the mindset that I'm in now and that I've tried to forge is not trying to hold myself accountable and lock myself in to, you know, drive as fast as I can towards meeting that five-year goal and ignoring everything else that may try to hinder me from that. Um, more trying to be like who I want to be. So I like that you said that. Yeah. And that's, and that I was struggling with that because I, there are times, um, where I, I get this feeling like I'm not making a difference. I'm, uh, I, I, I don't want to be the guy that gets up, goes to work, comes home. I want to be making a difference. Um, and the times I felt most alive in my life is when I feel like I was doing something that made a difference. Uh, and I enjoyed that. And so, um, you got to create that, you know, it's not just something to knock on your door. You got to create it. And so that's, for me, that's part of what this podcast was when I first started it <clears throat> was, uh, somebody's like, well, cause I always get this question. So what's your podcast about? I, I just talk to people that interest me <laughs> about things that interest them. You know, I mean, I'm, I, the girl up in Iota that won, um, Miss USA, Ashley uh, Ingram, Ashley Ingram. Uh, I, you know, yeah. Okay. I got to talk to her, <laughs> you know? brought her in I was, it fascinated me i knew nothing about pageants i knew nothing about any of that and how does this girl from sweetwater you get to that level well i have to call her up and find out and sit down and talk yeah. to her you know and so that's the point my podcast is about well that's the cool thing you know is if you find something interesting or if you are curious about something or don't know about something and especially if you have the ability like we all do today to put it out to millions and millions of people, there are going to be other people that are curious about that thing, find that thing interesting or want to learn about that thing. And I don't know how they find me. Uh, not that I have a lot of listeners, but when I go onto my, my podcast platform and I look at my downloads, they're in other countries on other continents. What were they Google searching? <laughs> <laughs> that brought them to my podcast and what in the world made them want to download it and i just think and it's when i see stuff like that that i think okay i need to keep it up i need to keep it up because there there there's definitely some traction and there are some people that are interested um and who knows you know who knows what this one will do i mean you'll put it out to your network i'll put it out to my network who knows what it'll do uh yeah and and if anything it does nothing. We still won because this has been fun. This has been fun. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're going on two hours and this conversation has not been boring once. So, you know, you know, I've, <laughs> I, I've done some that were three hours and I it got to the point where I was, I was going to have to pee. And, uh, <laughs> Intermission. Yeah. Uh, this was a live. I mean, he was sitting in front of me. So it's not like I can take a bottle and just say you're pissing. <laughs> you know, uh, and I told him, I said, look, we're, we're getting on three hours. I'm going to have to be more respectful of your time. He said, what? Said, yeah. He said, we seriously just did three hours. He said, yeah. He said, man, I didn't think I had it in me to do uh, 30 minutes. And we just did three hours. Said, yeah. So uh, and, and that's the fun thing about it. You get to interact. You get to talk about different stuff. I mean, think about the different things we've talked about. Because you asked me, do I need to prepare for anything? No. <laughs> I didn't have a list of questions. I, you know, I just 
we've talked about some pretty heavy stuff. We've talked about some pretty light stuff. I think it's just been a great conversation. Yeah, well, we sat down and rolled right into it to the point that I had to look up and make sure we were recording. I was like, we just got right into this damn thing. <laughs> I know, and, and I had to look up and be like, oh, shit, I should record this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the great thing about it, uh, this format. Um, and gosh, you've got me wanting to do this more. Um, I actually talked to the lighthouse. Do you know anything about the lighthouse here? Yeah, so um, I was still in Athens and you know, pretty, pretty closely affiliated with Tennessee Wesleyan and I was in Kiwanis at the time. So, um, I was kind of involved when they started it up, but I've not got to see any of the results from it being going for a few years now. Well, um, I, I was talking to them, uh, them being, uh, what's her name? It doesn't matter. Uh, and you can rent co-working space there. Mm-hmm. So you can either do $10 a day and drop in, use your Wi-Fi, and use that public space. But I was thinking, well, maybe I should do that. And that'll give me a place where I can go to do some writing. That'll give me a place where I can go and maybe do my podcast from time to time. And so I, I was actually looking at renting one of their offices, which is not that expensive. Uh, but what I didn't like about the offices were there were more cubicles. So if I'm in there doing this, it's going to be real. You know, oh, yeah. It wouldn't be that private. No, Lisa Dodson. So I was talking to Lisa about it. She said, oh, well, we've got this. And she took me over there and showed me the uh, sound booth. They've got a sound booth in there. So I can go wow. in there and just plug up and do it. That's cool. Hey, I'm going to have to get off here, man. I do appreciate your time. This has been fun. And uh, you do need to get a podcast. I yeah, I mean, about- I've got I've got some big ideas for it. I've got some people that are involved, but. Um, you know, I work really well off of other people. I think it's an ADHD thing, but right. you know, I'm, I'm thinking more and more that I don't, if this is a goal that I want to do, I don't need to rely on other people to get on board. I think, you know, maybe I just need to do it. So I think well, this has gave me uh, more confidence, uh, some confidence I didn't realize I needed to get started. So. Well, the guy that started the Pokemon YouTube, one of the things he did to grow his channel was he found, he reached out to the you know, obviously not the great big guys, but he started reaching out to other people who had the podcast or the channels and he brought them onto his and just did that. That's what helped him grow his channel. All right, brother. I'll cool. talk to you later. Tell your dad. I swear I'll, I'll part. You talk to him before I do tell him. I said, I, all right, man, you've been a great host. Thanks for having me on. Bye. See you, Scott.